We're going to be in Ecclesiastes. We are going to uh, continue um, where we left off. And in fact, I might even back up a little bit just to give better context. But turn to chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. And we're talking um, about this book of the Bible because it, it very much, in some ways, mirrors who we are. And really, all scriptures God breathed and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correct, all, all this stuff. And so uh, we know that it's, it's good for all times, but it's especially good for us because the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a guy who has everything. And I don't know if you're somebody who feels like you have everything or maybe you don't feel like you have everything. I, uh, this last Christmas um, or two Christmases ago, my, my dad, um, who thankfully he's not here, my dad, every Christmas he walks into Costco, and I swear this is what he does. He walks in, shows him his card, walks into Costco with his eyes closed, bumps into the first thing, and goes, okay, I'll take four of those, and buys four of whatever he bumps into. So this time he bought four of those robotic vacuums, those Roomba vacuums, and gave each one of, me and my brothers all got a, a uh, robotic vacuum, and I thought, oh, this is kind of gimmicky, but then you know, one day I'm sitting there and I'm reading the, uh, you know, reading through the uh, user's manual, which doesn't happen very often, um, but I just, I was bored, very bored, and so I'm reading through the user manual, and so I'm, I'm just kind of um, perusing through this, and then I read in there and beginning to think, but this is a pretty cool thing, and so I'm starting to read it, and I go, oh my goodness, there is a model that actually has a remote control, so you can actually sit on your couch and control your vacuum from your remote control. And so I'm immediately like excited because I have like a remote control thermostat. I don't have to get off the couch to change my thermostat. And this is, you can buy this at Home Depot. It's not that big of a deal. But I mean, if I can do everything from my couch, that would be pretty awesome for me, including vacuum uh, my house. Um, but in, in any case, so I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh my goodness, do I have the one that has the remote? So I'm searching feverishly. And then all of a sudden I was like, dang. My vacuum doesn't have a remote control. And then I thought about this, like, I'm upset right now <laughs> that I have a robot that's going to clean my carpet that I cannot control while sitting down. I mean, how lazy can we get? How lazy can we get? See, here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is talking about, it's talking to people that are kind of, they're a little bit uppity. They're, they're people who, who kind of have a lot of things. And I don't know if you understand this, but in the history of civilization, when you look out, out over the history of civilization, in many ways, we are the most advanced in a lot of ways. In technology, in the things that we have, the money that we have in our wallets or in our bank accounts. You may not even feel like you have a lot of money, but uh, honestly, I, I think about uh, my own life and I look at what my parents went through or what my in-laws, my wife's parents went through and having to get into their first home and the things that they had to do. I mean, it just, I mean, they're driving VW buses across the country and I mean, just things we would never think about doing. I mean, just crazy things that they went through. I mean, my, the, one of the first houses that my parents lived in, there were rats in the house and stuff. It's just stuff that many of us probably would never uh, even think of dealing with. And so uh, we are advancing and advancing, and many of us have, have money, and we are a little bit uppity, but we don't really think that we are. But Ecclesiastes is talking to people like us. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes, who's called the teacher or the preacher, uh, I believe it's Solomon who's, who's writing it, but that writer, he's essentially saying, I've tried everything and I have looked at all things. I look, I've looked in every capacity of life. 
everything that you could possibly put effort or time or, um, or hope or meaning into, and I found at the end of the day that it was meaningless. To, to, to place my hopes in these things ultimately led me to meaninglessness. And so today what he's going to get into is he's going to get into work or the things that we do, the skills that we are a part of and where that leads us and, and what, uh, what, what it does to us. And so uh, we'll be getting there in just a minute. But before we do that, I want you to get in your mind like a picture, a picture of the thing that you want, the thing that you think about. What's the thing that gets you up in the morning? What's the thing that drives you? What's the thing that's kind of constantly bringing angst in your life? Or what's the source of joy? I mean, I, I have this incredible picture. I have this absolutely incredible picture. I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you want to see it or not, but... Wow, can you believe that? Look at that. Look at that picture. I know it's got chicken wire in it. Don't worry about it. It's my wife being crafty. I'll be in trouble for that later, but you, I got a laugh out of it, right? It's always worth a laugh, get in trouble for a laugh. But look, look, at, look at that. Look at that. What's in that picture for you? What's, what's right there? Th this is the picture of your life, the perfect picture. What is it for you? What would you put in there? Would you put my abdomen? Um, what would you put there? Would it be work? Would it be kids? Would it be your creativity? Would it be a relationship? And just take a moment and just kind of paint that picture for just a moment. Like, what's, what's perfection look like to you? What's the thing that when you wake up that this thing is probably going to be on your mind? Most of us, it's going to be something that we're working at. If you're a mom, it's going to be the, your, your kids. If you have kids. I guess if you're a mom, you'd have to have kids. So, yes, that's true, right? It's probably your kids or should be. If you're a student, it's, it's probably hanging out after class. <laughs> I don't know. It's your grades. It's your future. And little by little, I mean, you're, you are a detailed artist, and you're, and you're, you're drawing something. And you're creating this stuff, and you're creating this, this preferred future. And you've created this picture that is just, that it's just, it's just immaculate. There's all kinds of details about it. You know what you want. Every single one of us has a picture in our life of what we want and what we want to see. I have a picture too. I have a picture, and I, I want to show it to you. Here, real quick, I'll explain it here in just a second. You can throw that picture up there if you found it there. Ooh. That is not my house. Some of you are going, we pay you too much, right? <laughs> that is not my house. You should see a picture of my house. It does not look like that. But that's, that's a picture of what, of what I want. 
my house to look like eventually. That's, that's what's in there for me. That when I look at my house, I look at, I look at my house and I go, yeah, that's what I want. I want two dormers. I want the, the entryway right over the middle and not in three weird doors throughout the house so that when people come to my house, they're like, which, if you've been to my house, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, which, which is the correct walkway? In 1910, they didn't put a lot of thought into flow, right? Uh, there, was, there, was, there was no HGTV at that point. And so it was, uh, it, it was, a, little, it was a little less. But that, that's, that's, that's my picture of really just my home. But my life would have that picture. It'd be a collage. It'd have another picture of my work, and it would have another picture of my kids and, and my wife and something else. And it would be a masterpiece if you saw what I see in my mind. If you could see what's in my mind, you would see it's a masterpiece. And I'll bet, maybe not for every single person here, but I bet that many of you have a preferred future. Many of you have some expectations. Many of you have something going on here that you want to see happen. Let me ask you, what happens when that doesn't happen? This amp isn't worth, worth much, right? Okay. Perfect. Yeah. What happens when that doesn't take, take place? How do you respond when life isn't going the way that you want it to? Or better yet, maybe you're like me. Maybe life really has taken its course and it has gone where you want it to. But then something else happens. We've talked about this before in this series. Like there's the next thing. And then there's the next thing. And then there's the next thing. See, the book of Ecclesiastes has been as good for me to study through it. Because when you study it, because you, you're going to teach it, you've you got to know it a whole lot better than you ever did before. And so here I am, I'm studying this passage. And I've told the church before that, man, God has brought up some things in my life that I'm just going, I keep looking at the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And do you know what it does to me? It causes me to be in this constant state of deep thought. I'm never really present right here and right now. I'm not present with my wife and my kids, or I'm not present maybe even at work because I'm thinking about the next thing. And you know what I call it? My inner drive. I'm a driven person. I've got this inner drive that drives me. And, and, and I want people to look at me, oh, Matt's a driven person because he's always thinking about something else. But you know what it does to my life? I'm never present. I'm always future. I'm never enjoying the good things that God has given me right this second. I, I don't want to say never, but it's hard for me. It's hard for me to realize that the things that I have right here and right now, including like a robotic vacuum cleaner, are th good things that God has given me right here and right now. And yet what I'm always doing is I'm always painting the picture in a different way. It's always a goal that's being pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. Like I get to this point and then my mind works this way where my mind goes, oh, I got to move the goal out further. I got to move the goal out further. I got to move it out further. And so pretty soon I'm running tired. And when I'm playing with my kids, I'm not really playing with my kids. 
I'm thinking, what do I have to do to make sure that they feel loved so that I can get back to working on my preferred picture of my home? Or so that I can get back to thinking about what's going to happen with my job? Because I'm always in this state of work, 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 drive, drive, drive. You know, a lot of us are like that too. A lot of us are like that. We're, we're driven people. America especially has this rugged individualism about it that says this, that I need to pull myself up by, by my bootstraps. Many people feel this way. I, I, need, to, I need to get something done. I don't, I don't need a handout. I need to go, I need to go do this. I need to take, take care of this. We have this inner drive that it's driving us to work and to work and to work until we've become one of the major superpowers in this world. Which in some ways you could look at it and you say that's a really good thing. But here's the thing. It has its drawbacks. Let's look at the passage. I want to take you from verse 22 of chapter 3 and then we'll go into chapter 4. Originally the chapter numbers were not here. So in a traditional book you wouldn't just read straight through. But in the Bible... All of this was uh, one flow of thought, basically. What it says is this. Verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So let me just put this in context real quick. Last week, we talked about this idea, the, the reality that God is sovereign, meaning he's in control of all things. And yet what happens is this, is that there still is injustice. In the place of justice is wickedness. In the place of righteousness is wickedness, it says earlier in chapter 3. It goes into, and then he goes into chapter 4 talking about oppression. And we talked last week about this, and so we're not going to cover it fully this week, but this oppression that's happening in our world, the oppression that's coming from terrorism, the oppression that's coming from the upper class towards uh, the lower classes, oppression all around us, the stuff that we see and we cry about, the stuff that causes us to just say, I wish I had never been born. That stuff happened last week. 21 Christians were murdered by ISIS. It's the stuff that causes us to just go, this is horrific. And who wants to be around in the midst of this? Who wants to be a part of this? And so what we talked about is this, is that God will judge. It may not come when we want it to right here and right now, but he's God. He gets to make that determination, and our responsibility is to trust him. But then what Solomon is going to do, the teacher, the preacher, the one who's speaking here, what he's going to do is he's going to go in a different direction right now, and he's going to say... Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's better to not have been born at all, he says. Verse 4, this is where I meant to go. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands 
and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. <clears throat> For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind." Now, this passage seems disconnected in some ways. I want to connect it for you. There's basically, as I look at it, I look at three movements. There's the state, statement of the problem. There's the solution to the problem. And then he goes into two stories that he talks about. The first story is somebody who doesn't have another. He doesn't have a, a brother or a son or whatever. He doesn't have anybody. And that's vanity. But then he talks about this old foolish king who can't take advice. And then he talks about this, this guy who is in prison. And then somehow he comes out of prison and he makes his way up to king. And so he's looking at the former generation. He's looking at this former king and he says, I'm going to rule differently. And so what he does is he does rule differently. And then people look at him and, they, and they, they honor him. And he leads all of these people as far as the eye can see, basically. But in the end, even that isn't recognized. So what you can look at here is you can see that there's a problem. And that is the problem is this. It's, let me restate it here. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he's stating here in this problem is this, is that when I read this just uh, over the last couple of weeks, what I've been thinking is this, is really all toil, is really all difficult work, the things that we do, our skills, is that all really driven out of the envy of our neighbor? Is that really what it is? The picture that I showed you of my to-be-home came off of Pinterest. The ideas that you have of your, of your body type and the way that you want to live, the success that you want to have, where do you get that? Oftentimes, you get it off of Facebook or what you see from other people. It used to be that wanting what your neighbor had was simply just looking across the street, but you don't even have to look across the street anymore. You can go on Pinterest, and you can pin 
your perfect life. You can pin your picture and you can, you can try to design it any way that you want. And you want this shelf and you want this guy or girl and, and you want this and you want that and you want this house and you want this car and you want this lifestyle and you want this vacation and you want that. And so when I come to this problem and, I, and it says that all of this toil and all of my work and all of my skill is driven, remember I said I'm a driven person, is driven by this sin of envy. That really, I'm somebody who just wants all kinds of things. Now, I don't have a Pinterest account. I did for about 24 hours, and a couple of guys found out about it and razzed me incessantly. I only got the account so that I could open that picture. For some reason, I couldn't open the picture without an account. But that's, yeah, you're all like, yeah, right, Matt. Yeah, yeah. We have these social media accounts, and they affect us. In fact, NPR wrote an article about a study that was done, and it essentially says this. When you're on a site like Facebook, you get lots of posts about what people are doing. That sets up social comparison. You maybe feel your life is not as full and rich as those people you see on Facebook. It goes on. When you're engaging in social interactions a lot, you're more aware of what others are doing, and consequently, you might be more sensitized about what's happening on Facebook and comparing that to your own life. And then get this. He says, if you're feeling bummed, researchers, researchers did test for and find a solution. The prescription for Facebook despair is less Facebook. I mean, it's brilliant, right? I mean, you're like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow, wow. Some scientists came up with this, right? The best. Researchers found that face-to-face -face or phone interaction, those outmoded analog ways of communication, had the opposite effect. Direct interactions with other human beings led people to feel better. To feel better. Our problem is this, is that our world isn't going closer to other people, it's getting further away. What Solomon says here confirms this. It was happening in his day. If you look earlier in the book, he talks about, hey, I built this. I built these, these pools to water the forest that I planted. He, he didn't plant a, a side garden like I'm hoping to do on the front of my house, or my wife is, I won't plant flowers, so. Um, he planted a forest. And he builds a pool, and he has women, any woman that he wants, and he has food, and he has success, and he has fame, and yet it all comes to nothing. And what he says here tells us something. He says in verse 7, Again I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You know, I've, I've had something going on in my heart lately where I've had to say, why do I feel 
not exactly happy. When everything in my life should point to the fact that I should be happy. My picture was painted. And in some ways, I had realistic goals. And and God, in his graciousness, allowed me to reach some of those. I have a beautiful family with a beautiful wife and a beautiful house. And I have a church that loves Jesus, and I get to be a part of it, and I get to preach. But yet there's this underlying sense of unhappiness. And why is it? It's because what Solomon sees here is that this is an unhappy business. It's an unhappy business to be always working at the expense of other people, at the expense of friendships. And you say, well, as a mom, it's not like you're really doing that at the expense of friendships. But here's the thing. It really does happen, even in the context of parenting at home. Because it's no longer about the relationship with my child, but it's about what I want my child, the picture, the way that I want my child to look in a picture, in the, in the, in the, in the picture of his life, how he or she does in school and, and how they respond and how they act. And so it's less about having the relationship. And so you can be a mom and you can be in your home, but you can be fully unaware of the relationship that you have with your child and fully aware of what you don't have in your present circumstances because you have a picture that you're going after. You have expectations that need to be fulfilled. And you can be somebody who's a young person and you can be uh, or an, an older person even. And you say, I'm single and I'm not married right now and I want to be married. And so you've painted this picture of what life with a spouse would look like, and you've painted this perfection. And so what's happening is this, is rather than enjoying the gifts that God has given you and enjoying your work and the things that you're doing, what's, what's happening is this, is that the envy of neighbor is sneaking in on a, on a regular basis. There's an envy that's driving you. And you think, I think it's a good thing to, to want to be in a relationship. Well, I do too. But what happens when that good thing becomes a demand in our life? And it's easy to talk about work. I mean, it's it's typical. In fact, some commentators say that this passage is, is written to typically younger men who are upper class. Younger men in, in upper class who are driven individuals. The quintessential man who's a businessman, somebody who's involved in their career today. Somebody who's driving, driving, driving. It's why you see people who are very successful have a high rate of divorce. It's why you see people who are involved uh, a lot of times in law enforcement. As they're driving and driving and driving because it, it sucks up their life. They're working and they're working and they're working. And at the end, they will not have another. They won't have the other Even though God has said that it's not good for man to be alone, what man ends up doing is he ends up working and working and working until the relationship with his wife is so deteriorated to the point where he finally just says, you know what, enough with you, you're distracting me from my work. Or she says, enough with you, you don't care about me. And then at the end of the day, you get to the end of your life and you're on your deathbed and you're never gonna say, I wish I had worked more. What you're going to say is that I wish I had spent more time with my kids and I wish I would have loved my wife the way that she deserved. I remember I told you a story a little bit ago about speaking to this 
uh, contractor. He, he owned a massive construction business. And uh, I, I remember I got to sit down with him and, and talk with him for just a couple of minutes. It was like the highlight of my 21-year-old life because I had just started a business and it was absolutely foolish. But uh, it, I got to hang out with this guy. And I remember him just kind of talking. And I was just trying to ask him some questions. But I think I remember him saying something to the, to the effect of, you're going to have to work hard. But you got to understand this. He said, when my kids got older, my kids turned around and they said to me, you know, Dad, I never really had a relationship with you. I mean, I, I, I wanted you to go out and, and throw the ball with me. I wanted to spend time with you. And he's like, you know, I provided a good life for you. And the thing that the kids didn't want is they didn't want this nice life or this nice stuff. They wanted a dad. And really the thing that you're doing when you live your life in that way, when you live your life in a constant state of envy, envy of the next wrong in the ladder, envy of the next business deal, when you are discontent on a regular basis, what you're perpetuating is a fatherless world. Yes, our country is very successful, and we're very uppity. We're high class, but it comes at a cost of many, many, many fatherless children, and even in some ways, motherless children who are going through life, and they're experiencing this lifestyle. And Solomon says essentially this, one person has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. His eyes are never satisfied. Your eyes, my eyes, were never satisfied. Can you see enough of what you desire on Pinterest, or does it go on? Infinity. Can you ever see enough of what's going on in someone's life on Facebook? Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. Years, years from now, we're going to look back and just go, what were we doing? I'm not decrying Facebook because there is some community aspect, aspects of it that are positive. What, what I am saying is this, is that it can lead to envy of your neighbor. We don't oftentimes look across the street because we're looking across the world at what's happening, and it happens to every single one of us. So one of the first results of this envy that's driving us is this. It's not having another. And it's because we've lived a joyless life. It's because we've, we've lived a joyless life. The second thing is this. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he, he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. Now, what this is saying, as I stated earlier, is this. Is that there's this young guy, and he sees the mistakes of the past, of this former king. But there's another thing about him. That he has been in prison. That he has been somebody who's been very poor. His kingdom was poor. His life was poor. 
But something happened in his life. He got a big break. And so he worked his way up the ladder. And it is one of the greatest success stories. It's the Bill Gates who's in a garage working on a computer at 13 and then grows to this massive empire. Or like Apple, Steve Jobs. It's these success stories that we love to see. It's like they were in prison or they were so poor and now they are king. They are king. But Solomon looks at this and says, you can work all of your life. You can use wisdom and you can look at the past generation and you can say, that guy or that girl was an idiot. And you could say this. You could say, you know what? I'm going to do things differently. And you know what? He did. And you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can use all of this wisdom and you can go and you can go and you can go. And you know what Solomon's going to tell you? You've painted a picture. And you've painted it well. And guess what? You executed perfectly because you used wisdom. You know what he says? It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. You might say, well, I, I got what I want, so that will matter to me. But here's the thing. You cannot take that with you. Everyone will forget you. And you say, well, we have the internet now, and I've got my own webpage, and I paid for the subscription forever. No. I'm talking about forever is a long time. You will go away. I will go away. There will be no remembrance of us. There will be no remembrance of us. Even if we get that picture. And so there's a couple problems. There's relationship problems, but there's also this. There's what happens if you actually get it. Is that really going to fulfill you? And Solomon says this. It's not going to happen. It's not going to take place. And so what needs to happen? He says this. Verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. What's this quietness that he's talking about? What's, what's this quietness that he's, that he's referring to? Is it, is it something that's even attainable? I mean, can you and I actually get to this quietness? What, what does it mean to be quiet in the midst of our life? It means this. We're talking about rest. We're talking about satisfaction. Look at what he says in verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. He's saying, look at what's around you and stop living in the future. And I'm not saying don't have hopes. But he's saying this, look at what is around you right now. Like stop and be in the moment and enjoy your life. But here's the thing, many of us can't enjoy my life right now because I'm always pushing that goal line out. I'm always painting a new picture. But really it's going to end to less relationships and it's going to lead 
to less fulfillment and no one will remember in the end. No one will remember. No one's going to remember what we've done. And so what's the answer to this? What's the answer? I've written down just a couple of things. I want to encourage you. Just this last week, I, I came to this conclusion that I was unhappy in some ways. I was joyless in some ways. And this is kind of what I'm saying about myself. My envy turns hope into demanding expectations. Envy turns hope into demanding expectations. Now, hope is a good thing, but hope's got to be done in the right way. If you build your life on these hopes, if you take and you say, I'm going to build my life, I'm going to build my identity on this picture, I mean, many of you, if you have a Pinterest account or if you have a Facebook account, if I go on, on to your page, I can see what you're, what you're about. I can see your identity. I can see your idealized life. If we were to go to your Pinterest account, if we were to go to your Instagram account, I can see what's going on in your life. I can see what's taking place. But here's the thing. It's really ultimately just envy. My work my toil, my skill is going after this envy, but envy turns hope into demanding expectations. And that's how I walk around in life. I have demanding expectations that are gnawing at me sometimes. So let me just say this. I'm sorry. Have you been on the receiving end of Matt having expectations that you haven't that you haven't been able to fulfill I'm sorry I need, I need to repent of that I need to say to my wife last night like I haven't been present with the kids and I haven't been present with you I'm literally this dumb I've been thinking about how much I want the grass to look better than thinking about my kids. I'm literally that dumb. I've been thinking about what, the, what adjustment I want to make on the church, on my job. It's got to begin there. It's got to begin with reality, like this is who I am. So I just wrote some things down. Write down your picture. In every area of life, write down your picture. Like, this is my idealized view. This is what I hope to get to in, my, in, in the way that my house looks and the way that my grass looks and the way that my kids look and the way that my degree looks write down your picture in every area of life what are your expectations what will happen if they are unmet write this down just you know what are my expectations this is my idealized picture what's going to happen to me if those are unmet just ask that question Secondly, ask, where did I get this picture? Where is it coming from? Because there's some pictures, there's some hopes from the scriptures that are positive things. 
I want to train up my children in the way of the Lord so that when they are older, they will not depart from it. That's a hope that I have. But where did I get this picture? Is it, is it something from God or is it something from Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram? Is it something I've just made up in my mind? That's the way that my parents lived. That's how much money they made. That's those, those friends of mine, their kids, that's the way they respond. Where did I get this picture? Is it a mom that I know who seemingly goes through life and she's like, like, like effortlessly like does the laundry, bam, like effortlessly, not, not that all moms have to do laundry, but let's just say that if you're at home and, and you occasionally do that, or you're cleaning the house or taking care of the kids, or maybe you're working and you look at somebody like that and you say, I love the way that she is a mom and she works, whatever it is. Where'd you get that picture? Where'd that come from? How did you formulate this idea in your head? Where did it take place at? Third, is the root of this picture actually envy of my neighbor or Pinterest or Facebook or Twitter? Let me tell you, the way that you find out whether envy is at the heart is when your pursuit of those things is joyless. I'll be happy when this happens. You know how I know? Because that's me. I'll be happy when I have a vacuum that has a remote. I'll be happy when people come up to my house and they go, wow, Reverend Porter. What an amazing yard you have. You really have taken seriously uh, the command that we should, whatever, be fruitful and multiply, that's for sure. Uh, we've done that. We have four kids, but, uh, but my yard, I'm talking about my yard. Uh, you have taken care of this so well. How amazing. I, what is it about me and my grass? Because I just I obsess about it. I have these onions that are coming up in the grass, and it's driving me crazy. It's bringing me less joy, and I'm going, well, how can I kill those things? When my son is sitting there saying, Dad, will you build this with me? Will you do, do this? And I'm, and I'm perplexed. And I'm going, I just care about the onion in my grass right now. Is, is your pursuit of these things, is it joyless? Then it's rooted in envy. Number four, and it says, where is my joy? Am I consistently joyless because this picture is unmet? Ask, where is my joy right now? Number five, how is this picture keeping me from enjoying what God has given me to do or be a part of? Am I distracted from my friends, my family? my church because of my desires to fulfill this picture in my life. See, here's the thing that some of you don't realize, and that is that somehow we get in our head that our relationship with God comes secondary to the gifts that he's given us, which is work. Work is a gift. So my relationship with God and my commitment to being with God's people comes secondary to what God has given me to enjoy. And so what happens is this, is that we become less and less 
able to enjoy the things that God has given because we're not recognizing who God is. And what Solomon says here is true, that two are better than one. And yet you are an individual and you're saying, I just don't have time for God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Make your church a priority. Make your church a priority. And you say, it's easy for you to say, yeah, I mean, doesn't that benefit you? Well, I like it when people are here. But I can tell you this. I know so many people who lack growth in their life because they simply will not make a commitment to be with God's people. And you say, what's the purpose of this? Can't I listen to a podcast? And I would say this, you could listen to a podcast. And, you, and I hope you're at least doing that. You could listen to a recorded sermon. You could read good books. But there is no substitute. You were created for community. It is not good that man should be alone. You were created for community. Now, you may be single for your entire life, but you were still created for community. And you can find that in the church. You can find that in the church. It's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. How's this picture keeping me from enjoying what God has given me? Keeping you from friends, keeping you from family, keeping you from the church. Number six, how do you overcome this? Serve God even with your hopes. Serve God even with your picture. Instead of this being the thing, oh, great, magnificent picture of mine, how fantastic you are. This is my life, and I bow down to you, and I worship you. I sacrifice my children on the altar of the oh-so-great picture. I sacrifice my relationships. I sacrifice my church on this. I sacrifice my joy on the altar of this picture. Do you know what sin is? Sin is building an identity on anything but God. Sin is saying this, that God matters less, or God's not even in the picture, and what really matters is what God can give me. And so you think that God's kind of your buddy, like Jesus is my homeboy type stuff, and you say, hey God, how about I'll be nice to you, and I'll throw an extra five in the plate, or I'll come to church occasionally, or I'll occasionally talk about the big man upstairs, and you give me what I want as long as I'm nice to you in my thoughts or something like that, or and I talk like I'm a Christian or something like that, and you give me what I want, you give me my picture. But here's the thing. The most ungracious thing that God can do for you is to give you what you want. Because it would be a lie. To give you, to give you ultimate fulfillment and the picture that you've painted in your life, and to say, that's what you want, that's it, and that's everything, that's a lie. Because God's created you for more. God's created you, and you will never be content with success. You'll never be content with the achievement of that picture, and God is gracious to you as he withholds it so that you might find him. God sometimes is withholding that job or that relationship or that, that thing, that ultimate happiness, because he's saying, ultimate happiness isn't found in the grass, Matt. 
Ultimate happiness isn't found in your kids. Ultimate happiness isn't found in anything but me, God is saying to you. And as you search and as you search and as you search, God is gracious in saying, I'm, I'm removing that, I'm removing that, I'm removing that. I'm not going to allow you to get ultimate fulfillment. Serve God even with your hopes. How do you do that? Well, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. What that means is this, is that I'm going to find out about this God. Like you could say, I'm a Christian, but here's the thing. Like you could say whatever you want, but it doesn't mean it that the internal workings of your heart really are in that direction. You could say, I, yeah, I'm Christian because you grew up in a Christian nation. And you, on your dollar bills, it says, in God we trust. But everybody knows that that doesn't make any difference. Who knows where that dollar bill's been put? Here's the thing. How do you delight yourself in this God? Well, you have to see him first. Very practically, it's looking in the word. It's being a part of a church. It's being a disciple. But what is it being a disciple of? It's looking at God himself. And he's, God shows us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He shows us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we express this trust? How do we express this, okay, I'm going to serve you with the things that you've given me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow you to be the one that paints the picture. I'm going to allow you to be the one that shows me what's going on here. How do we do that? Let me tell you, it, it won't be easy. Let me just sell Christianity to you here for just a second, all right? It might be the hardest thing that you ever do. And I would argue this, if you're doing it right, it will be the hardest thing that you ever do. Christianity gives you no guarantees of comfort. Christianity gives you no guarantee that everything will go well. Your job won't get better. It might get worse. You might get fired. You might get your head cut off. You, you, uh, you might lose your business because you stand up for a moral principle that you believe in. It's happening today. These are not far off. This happened last week. Christianity isn't going to make things better in a worldly perspective. But what will it do? See, you can serve your own idea of a picture. And here's the thing. Your picture will never forgive you. Your picture will never forgive you. You can paint whatever you want there. And your kids could end up like hell. And it'll never forgive you. And you could paint that picture and you could say, I really want this fantastic business. But that business will fail. And this picture will never forgive you. 
And you can go after all kinds of things, and you can put those things there, and you can paint, and you can paint, and you can paint, but it will not forgive you, and it cannot forgive you. See, here's the thing. Jesus is the only one that you can build an identity on. When Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What are you delighting in? You're delighting in this God who says, I'm not going to allow you to find fulfillment in anything else so that you see that I'm the only thing that's worthy of your worship. So that you can see this. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull that out so that you can see what I've done for you. See, Jesus is the only thing worthy of building your identity on. Jesus is the only one. He's the only person worthy of painting a picture about. Jesus is the only one. Because he's the only one who, if you fail him, He'll forgive you, and if you sin against him, he'll die for you. Your picture won't do that for you. You say, well, that's really difficult. I, I, I really want to serve him, but I, I just don't know that I have what it takes. Well, you know what? Jesus, Jesus had hopes, too. I believe Jesus' thought process in his mind was directed towards honoring God, his Father. Jesus, as God in the flesh, was directed towards honoring the will of God. And just before he was crucified, Luke chapter 22, verse 41 says, And he withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. How do you submit your, your life to God, your, your picture to him? Father, if you are willing, will you do this? Father, if you are willing, will you stop this from happening and start this happening? Father, if you are willing, if it's up to you, And it is, because you're sovereign. If it's in your will, if it's in the context of what you want, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. See, Jesus, he's expressing something there. He's personalizing what's going on in his own heart. And he's saying, I really don't want to go through the pain and the suffering, but I'm willing. And then he says this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so how do we do that? Say, Jesus, I see you on the cross. That you submitted your picture. And while I don't believe it was different than what what God the Father wanted, because God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father are one, along with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is certainly showing us something where he's saying, if I could not do this, I would like that. It's almost like if it was us, we'd be saying, Jesus, I have a picture, and I I really want that to happen. I really want that to take place. 
If it's your will, will you allow that to take place? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Are you somebody who could say that? Our envy turns hope into demanding expectations that lead to an unhappy life with less friends or no friends, less family, no family, brokenness. But Jesus went to the cross so that you could see that he was broken for you. Jesus went to the cross so that you could see that there is no other. We have no other king. There is nothing else that will satisfy you. There is nothing else that will ever do the job as well as Jesus. In a minute, we're going to sing this song called Cornerstone, taken from an old hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Don't trust your frame. Don't trust your picture. Trust the picture that you've submitted to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would sift out what needs to go. So many of us have a picture that we've painted and it has nothing to do with you and you're a, a side thought. And we lack enjoyment in our work and in our life. We lack the ability to enjoy the things that we have because we're constantly pursuing other endeavors and we're constantly pursuing other things. And Solomon's solution is that we didn't just enjoy life, but the truth is, is that most of us don't even have the willpower to do that, and those of us that do, that has become our, our new goal. It's become our new picture, and so the only way for us to let go of this picture is to look at you and the picture of you sitting in the garden and just saying, I, not my will, but thy will be done. I wish this cup would be taken from me. But God, I will do what you want. And so Lord Jesus, this morning, what that looks like is a step of faith for each and every one of us. Some of us need to go home and take this list and say, where is it that my, what is my picture painted like? Where is my envy of my neighbor? Do I need to get off of social media? Do I, do I need to tone that down? Some of us need to express faith in you for the first time because we've never given our lives to you. We've just been pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and never finding. But yet, you're the one that we've been looking for all of our life and we've never realized it until hopefully right now. And so, Lord, I'm praying that this morning that those folks would say yes to you and say, I'm going to trust you that when you went to the cross that it was meaningful for me and that you died for me. Lord Jesus, we pray for this. We pray that you would do that in our lives. It's in your name we pray.